TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. Yanis Varoufakis, How Do We Get the Russian Troops to Withdraw from Ukraine? This is a passionate appeal for peace by the former academic and Minister of Finance. After resigning from the Greek government in 2015, Yanis Varoufakis did not return to academia. He's now engaged in European politics as a visionary speaker, writer, and active participant. In February 2016, he launched the Democracy in Europe movement and is active in the building and social justice and financial goal-setting of the European Union and holds a parliamentary seat since July 2019. The first clip you will hear is Varoufakis' message for peace in Ukraine to the Progressive International. It was launched when the Democracy in Europe movement and the Sanders Institute in Vermont made an open invitation for progressive forces to join across all borders. Varoufakis records from his kitchen for the meeting on March 9, 2022. Hello, this is Yanis Varoufakis uh, with a message uh, on behalf of Mera25, a political party here in Greece, and TM25, our pan-European movement, a message to comrades uh, participating in the Peace Forum of the Progressive International. These are very dire times, so you'll allow me a very personal message. When a country or a region is invaded, I feel as if I'm being overpowered by a duty. A duty to take the side of the people facing troops with direct orders to violate their homes, to bombard their neighborhoods, to destroy the circumstances of their existence of their very life, and to do so without hesitation, unconditionally. When I see civilians in the Ukraine preparing Molotov cocktails by which to fend off the invaders, I cannot but cheer them on, independently of the history of Ukrainian politics, independently of how their government came about, independently of whether they actually like their government. Defending the right of Iraqis to defend themselves from advancing American troops back in 2003 had nothing to do with an acceptance of the vile Saddam Hussein, which brings me painfully to note the double standards of the West. On the one hand, a 15-year-old in Kalkidia throwing stones at advancing Israeli army bulldozers whose purpose is to demolish this kid's home, the West calls her or him a terrorist. But when Ukrainians throw Molotov cocktails, they're heroes. To help Ukrainians today morally in this struggle for existence effectively, we first need to demonstrate that we use the same moral compass, whether we are in Ukraine, Iraq or Yemen. Only the other day, the Saudi Arabian Air Force bombarded Yemen 37 times in one day. To ignore the Yemeni victims of Western Saudi aggression is to diminish humanity's capacity to show solidarity with Ukrainians and also our capacity to chastise Putin. Treating some victims of invasion as more deserving than others lessens our capacity to stand with any victims and all victims. To help Ukrainians find a path to peace and freedom, which is the number one priority or should be the number one priority, we must also choose to put their interest above our fixations and ideologies. I am a left-winger, but while people in the Ukraine are dying, I do not have the right to focus on whether President Zelensky is a good Democrat, left-winger, his political biases, whether these are to my liking. It is relevant. 
Similarly, I hope that those who have completely different politics to mine, they may really like NATO and think that the European Union is the best thing that could happen to Ukraine, I hope that they put those predispositions yeah, very much lower on their list of priorities than the right of Ukrainians to live in freedom, peacefully and independently. So the only question that we need to ask ourselves now is this. How do we get the Russian troops to withdraw from the Ukraine? Any other question must wait. We know how Russian troops will not withdraw. We know that NATO is not going to come to the assistance of Ukrainian fighters. There won't even be a no-fly zone, despite Zelensky's requests. So how do we stop Putin from eventually occupying large parts of the Ukraine, with immeasurable medium and long-term costs for the Ukrainians, for the Russians, for Europe, for the world? There are only two possibilities, a diplomatic solution or regime change in Russia. Anybody who believes that the sanctions, the war, the continued uh, campaign against the whole of the people of Russia, as if it is the fault of the people of Russia, as opposed to just Putin's and his regime. Anybody who believes that all this is going to bring about regime change and is banking on regime change to save the Ukrainians, is placing the interests of the people of the Ukraine and, of course, everybody else, very low in their list of priorities. A diplomatic solution is the only thing which is consistent with humanism, with rationality and with peace. While this conflict is raging, we need to keep in mind what Putin is capable of. The more the brave Ukrainians are resisting Russian troops, the nearer we're getting to a Grozny-like vile outcome. Remember who Putin is? To solidify and stabilize his fledgling presidency back you know, 20 years ago or so, he flattened Grozny. He turned it into Dresden. What's going to stop him from doing the same thing with Kiev? So this is not a theoretical question. It's a question of saving tens of thousands of lives with a diplomatic solution that the West, unfortunately, does not seem to be considering seriously with their fixation of the right of Ukraine to become a NATO member or an EU member. This is a theoretical right that has no bearing upon the reality of Ukrainians today. So what would an agreeable diplomatic solution look like? It would comprise three aspects. First, an immediate ceasefire and withdrawal of Russian troops. Secondly, the opportunity for Putin to portray any deal, any agreement, as a kind of victory for him. And third, whatever agreement comes about must be jointly guaranteed by Moscow and the United States, by Washington. And to have any credibility and utility in the long term, it must involve a whole process of de-escalating tensions between NATO, Poland, the Baltics, the whole caboodle, and Russia. Is there a chance that Putin will agree to something like this? Absolutely. He's a ruthless killer, I have no doubt about that. But he's not mad and he's not stupid. He knows that his economy cannot sustain a long-term occupation of the Ukraine, nor can his military. He knows that the way in which his central bank was cut off from the international system of central banks, eventually this is going to bring his regime down, maybe in 10 years, maybe in 15 years, but he knows it. So he would be interested in a deal that does two things, gives him a way out and also allows him to go to his regime, to his oligarchs and say, look, I stopped the eastward expansion of NATO and I got the United States to, to grant Russia the respect that it deserves in the context of a summit between Biden and Putin. Now, of course, such an agreement would leave everybody slightly dissatisfied, but it would give the Ukrainians the chance to rebuild a free, democratic and independent Ukraine. Many issues will need to be solved. 
For instance, the European Union can pour large quantities of money, if we care, as we say we do, about the Ukrainians into rebuilding the Ukraine well before there is any discussion about uh, the Ukraine's accession to the European Union. At the same time, once Washington and Moscow jointly guarantee an agreement, you can have a demilitarized zone along the Ukrainian-Russian border and the contested Donetsk and Luhansk regions could be administered along the lines of something like the Northern Irish Good Friday Agreement, which allows for a kind of joint sovereignty. Both Dublin and London are overseeing it with the European Union. A deal of that nature would be ideal even for this highly contested area between Russia and the Ukraine. Is this going to work? Who knows? What I do know is that the alternative is a long-term occupation spelling in the long run, too long for Ukraine, the Ukrainians to benefit, a major crisis in Russia that may, who knows, even yield somebody worse than Putin. The option of an independent yet neutral Ukraine. Along the lines of Austria, Sweden, Finland, countries that managed to build free democratic societies because of their neutrality during the Cold War. That is a real option for the Ukraine today. Possibly the only one. Anyone who places the theoretical right of the Ukrainians to join NATO in the EU really doesn't care about the Ukrainians. They care a lot more about NATO's image or the EU expansion. But is this the priority today? Comrades, friends, it is precisely at times like this, when the people of Europe are being railroaded into taking the side either of Putin or of NATO, that an organization like ours, the Progressive International, must break the deadlock and point to the only alternative, which is progressive internationalism, democracy, and yes, non-alignment with either the military-industrial complex of the United States, the CIA and NATO, or with a brutish misanthrope, Vladimir Putin, who having sat on the necks of his own people, is now invading the people of Ukraine. Carpe diem. That was the former Greek finance minister and academic Yanis Varoufakis recording his message to the Progressive International Meeting on March 9, 2022. On March 6, 22, the British comedian and YouTuber, with a following of over 5 million, invited Varoufakis for a conversation about peace in Ukraine. Russell Brand gave it the title so this is why Ukraine is being attacked. And after a brief introduction, turn the broadcast over to Varoufakis. So I hand over the podcast to you, Yanis Varoufakis. See you in an hour. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you won't abandon me so quickly. Look, first things first. When there is an invasion, we must always take the side of the people who are facing troops, with direct orders to violate their homes, to bombard their neighborhoods, to destroy the circumstances of their lives. And I say that without any hesitation and unconditionally. This is not something that our Western rulers do. I say this regarding the Ukrainians. When I see Ukrainians in Kharkiv, for instance, putting together a Molotov cocktails, by which to defend their homes from the advancing Russian tanks, I applaud them. But our rulers applaud them, while at the same time, when there is a 15-year-old kid 
in Chalkidia, in the Palestinian territories, uh, throwing a stone at an advancing bulldozer with the intent to demolish his home, they call him a terrorist. So we make no such uh, distinctions. We support the defenders of their homes, of their neighborhoods, of their communities. So today we stand with Ukraine, unconditional, no ifs, no buts, no conditionalities attached. To help Ukrainians at this very moment in time, we need to apply the same moral compass, universally, making the distinctions between fashionable, deserving victims in the Ukraine and unfashionable victims in Yemen, where only 48 hours ago, there were 37 sorties by Saudi Arabian bombers taking out civilians in Yemen. My simple point is that to support the Ukrainian victims of Russian aggression, you have to support the Yemen victims of Saudi aggression. Let's forget about our little ideologies at the moment. When there are people who are dying, their circumstances, their situation must prevail and must trump our own political projects, whether it is my political project, your political project, or NATO's political project. So the question now is, how do you stop the carnage? How do we get the Russian troops to withdraw back to their bases? And how do the Ukrainians get a chance to fight it out amongst each other, not with weapons, but with the power of arguments between the leftists and the rightists, between the communists in the Ukraine and the Nazis? And there are Nazis in Ukraine. This is not a reason to bomb Ukraine. In this country, in my country, at some point, the Nazi organization called Golden Dawn was the third largest party. So what? You bomb Greece because we have the serpent's egg hatching in our midst? No. What you do is you create the circumstances for democratic politics uh, in Greece, in the Ukraine, in Yemen, to fight Islamist fundamentalism, Nazism, fascism, you know, Boris Johnson, whatever. <laughs> um, so how do we get the Russian troops out of there? NATO is not proposing to invade, uh, and that's a good thing, because if NATO invaded now, uh, in support of the Ukrainians, we would have third world war. Uh, and, you know, climate change wouldn't get a chance. We would have uh, destroyed the planet before climate change was completed. When I see the Ukrainian resistance fighters putting up a great struggle and preventing the Russian tanks from entering Kiev, you know, I celebrate with them. But I know who Putin is. Putin is a ruthless killer. He proved that when in 2000, he flattened Grozny. He destroyed a city of 250, 300,000 people in Chechnya, just in order to solidify his hold over the Russian government. Uh, he's perfectly capable of, you know, like, like he turned Grozny to, into Dresden, turning Kiev into Dresden. So I shudder to think if he does it. So the more our Ukrainian comrades resist his army, the more likely it is that they, we are going to have that. I'm not suggesting that they should stop resisting. If I were them, I would keep fighting, you know, come what may, even if he flattens the city. But we, from where we are, from the comfort of our, of our own home or studio or whatever, um, we have a moral imperative to try to find a solution, a solution that we could sell to uh, Putin that saves all these tens of or hundreds of thousands of people in the Ukraine and gives them a chance to breathe and a chance for democracy and a chance for independence. Now, the question is, what? is there anything that Putin would buy 
<laughs> as part of such a deal. And I think there is. I think that Putin is ruthless and a killer and a war criminal, Chechnya, right? <laughs> uh, but he's not dumb. Uh, he's a highly trained strategist for the KGB. He knows that he cannot occupy the Ukraine forever. He knows that he's going to some, have something worse than Vietnam in his hands. He knows that the Russian economy is smaller than the economy of Texas, by the way, in terms of gross domestic product. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't have the funds to continue. He, he, he has the funds to continue to do a lot of damage to the Ukrainians, okay, to destroy a whole generation. But he cannot hold Ukraine and he cannot hold Russia if he continues, you know, along the lines of a modern Afghanistan for five, six, seven, eight years. So he's looking for a way out. And even if he's not looking for a way out today, he will be looking for a way out next week. And what is this way out that we can offer him, which is consistent with the interests of the Ukrainians and the rest of the world? Um, imagine if there was an offer by President Biden, uh, because the European Union doesn't count, they're just the blackies of the, of the US. But Biden could um, hold a summit with uh, Putin and a quid pro quo could emerge, the quid pro quo being very simple. Russia withdraws from uh, Ukraine. There is an agreement for the demilitarization of Donbas and the region around the borders between Ukraine and uh, Russia. There can be some bargaining regarding particular plots of land, Crimea and so on. And both Russia and the United States guarantee the neutrality and independence of Ukraine. Anybody who says that, that all that's giving in to Putin will have to answer, what is the alternative? The alternative is carnage, a prolonged occupation, permanent division of the Ukraine in the long run, and the toxification of politics, both in the Ukraine and in Russia. Look, um, amongst all this um, unpleasantness and distress that we all feel, I had some fantastic news today. The Progressive International, which is this body that we set up with Bernie Sanders back in 2018 and now has we have organizations representing something like 200 million people around the world. We received uh, a letter signed by several organizations of Russian socialists from Moscow, from St. Petersburg. And allow me to read just a few extracts, I won't bore you too much, uh, of what they say. So these are Russians in Russia today, not the emigres, in Russia today, taking huge, huge risks, writing this and sending this to us and asking us to publish it. So here we go. We are told, they say, that the opponents of this war are hypocrites and that they stand not against the war, but for the West. This is a lie. This is Russian speaking. We have never been supporters of the United States and its imperialist policies. When Ukrainian troops shelled Donetsk and Luhansk, these are the Eastern provinces with quite a few Russian speakers in the Ukraine that uh, were sort of um, annexed, quasi-annexed by Putin in 2014. We were not silent, say the Russians, nor will we be silent now when Kharkov, Kiev, and Odessa are being bombed on the orders of Putin and his Kamarilla, his entourage. There are so many reasons to fight against the war. For us advocates of social justice, equality, and freedom that are especially important, this is an invasion. No threat to the Russian state exists. But go on. I won't bore you reading the whole part. This war produces incalculable disasters for our peoples. Both Ukrainians and Russians are paying for it dearly 
with their blood. Long after the dust has settled, poverty, inflation, and unemployment will affect everyone, and they continue. This war will turn Ukraine into rubble and Russia into a prison. This is Russians speaking. The opposition media have already been shut down in Russia. People are placed behind bars. Soon, Russians will have only one choice, and that is to rise up or prison. This war multiplies all the risks and threats to our country, Russia, they mean. Even Ukrainians, who a week ago sympathized with Russia, are now enlisting in the militia to fight our troops. Finally, fighting for peace is the patriotic duty of every Russian, not only because we are the custodians of the memory of the worst war in history, Second World War, when 20 million Russians died, or Soviets, but also because this war threatens the integrity and very existence of Russia. And they finish off with this beautiful paragraph. Putin is seeking to connect his own fate with the fate of our country. If he succeeds, then his inevitable defeat will be the defeat of the entire nation. Then we may indeed face the fate of post-war Germany, occupation, territorial division, the cult of collective guilt. There's only one way to prevent these catastrophes. We ourselves, the men and women of Russia, have to stop this war. This country belongs to us, not to a handful of distraught old men with palaces and yachts. It is time to take it back. Our enemies are not in Kiev and Odessa, but in Moscow. It is time to kick them out. War is not Russia. War is Putin and his regime. That is why we, Russian socialists and communists, are against this criminal war. We want to stop it in order to save Russia. No to intervention, no to dictatorship, no to poverty. Russell, that was the best news I've had since the beginning of this invasion. Reading this piece. You heard two recordings with Yanis Varoufakis on the question of how do we get the Russian troops to withdraw from Ukraine? Most recently, he was the guest on Russell Brand's YouTube channel. The posting date is March 6, 2022. Varoufakis' recommendations on how to bring about peace in Ukraine are widely supported in Europe. The future of NATO is crucial in negotiations for peace and there's much disagreement over NATO's history and the power plays in the background. Here's an especially interesting example of a crowdsourced collection of critical comments on NATO on a Twitter thread at Arno Bertrand. They include famous people such as Noam Chomsky and CIA Director Bill Burns and Clinton's Defense Secretary William Perry and all are backed by video or text links. I will use the remaining minutes of this radio program to get to as many as possible. The working title of this collection is How Western Strategic Thinkers Warned U.S. NATO Over Ukrainian Conflict. The first entry is well known. George Kennan, the architect of the U.S. Cold War strategy, warned in 1998 that NATO expansion was a tragic mistake. Henry Kissinger in 2014 warned that to Russia, Ukraine can never be just a foreign country. He was adamant that Ukraine should not join NATO. John Mersheimer, a leading geopolitical scholar in the U.S. today, said in a video in 2015, quote, the West is leading Ukraine down the primrose path. 
and the end result is that Ukraine is going to get wrecked. What we're doing is, in fact, encouraging that outcome. Clinton's Defense Secretary, William Perry, explained in his memoir that to him, NATO enlargement is the cause of the rupture in relations with Russia, and that in 1996, he was so opposed to it that, in the strength of my conviction, I considered resigning. Noam Chomsky, public intellectual, said in an interview in 2015 that, quote, the idea that Ukraine might join a Western military alliance would be quite unacceptable to any Russian leader, and that Ukraine's desire to join NATO is not protecting Ukraine. It is threatening Ukraine with major war. Stephen Cohen, the late famed scholar of Russian studies, warned in 2014 that if we move NATO forces towards Russia's borders, it's obviously going to militarize the situation and Russia will not back off. This is existential. CIA Director Bill Burns said in 2008, Ukrainian entry into NATO is the brightest of all red lines for Russia. And I have yet to find anyone who views Ukraine and NATO as anything other than a direct challenge to Russian interests. Former U.S. Defense Secretary Bob Gates wrote in 2015, Moving so quickly to expand NATO was a mistake. Trying to bring Georgia and Ukraine into NATO was truly overreaching and an especially monumental provocation. Pat Buchanan, in his 1999 book, A Republic, Not an Empire, wrote, By moving NATO onto Russia's front porch, we have scheduled a 21st century confrontation. In 1997, a group of individuals, including Robert McNamara, Bill Bradley, and Gary Hart, wrote a letter to Bill Clinton warning that the U.S.-led effort to expand NATO is a policy error of historic proportions. Sir Roderick Lyne, former British ambassador to Russia, warned a year ago that, quote, pushing Ukraine into NATO is stupid on every level. If you want to start a war with Russia, that's the best way of doing it. Also last year, famous economist Jeffrey Sachs in a column in the Financial Times warned that NATO enlargement is utterly misguided and risky. True friends of Ukraine and of global peace should be calling for a U.S. and NATO compromise with Russia. And Fiona Hill, presidential advisor, said, We warned George Bush that Mr. Putin would view steps to bring Ukraine and Georgia closer to NATO as a provocative move that would likely provoke preemptive Russian military action. These are some of the first 19 entries from an ever-expanding Twitter thread at Arnaud Bertrand, how Western strategic thinkers warned U.S. NATO over Ukrainian conflict. Before March 15, a participant in this research effort posted a link to a speech by Senator Biden. I think the one place where the greatest consternation would be caused in the short term for admission 
would be to admit the Baltic states now in terms of NATO-Russian, U.S.-Russian relations. And if there was ever anything that was going to tip the balance were it to be tipped in terms of a vigorous and hostile reaction, I don't mean military, in Russia, it would be that. That was Senator Joe Biden on C-SPAN on June 20th, 1997. Peace in Ukraine. You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. My name is Maria Gelarden. Thank you for listening.